And um, this psalm, I, I have to say, is one of my favorite. Um, in fact, in fact, as we as we get there, um, there is one of the verses here. Verse ten has become kind of one of my one of my life verses, I should say, not not the life verse, but one of them. Um, so here we are. Uh, this psalm that is is written uh, from the longing of of the heart, and I'd like to read the whole thing and then go back and and um, dissect it a bit. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of Hosts! My soul longed and and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Selah. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The, the early rain also covers it with blessing. And they go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give, give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. And no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Lord, we thank you for this psalm. And we pray that, that uh, you would un unpack, uncover the treasures that are here within it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. How lovely. When you hear those words, I think of, oh, I don't know, a scene um, somewhere in the country with flower boxes that are just blooming, and, and we think, oh, how lovely. What a great, wonderful burst of color. It's so beautiful. But it's interesting that this word lovely that's translated here actually has more of a connotation of how beloved. How beloved is this dwelling place? How beloved is your dwelling place, O oh God? Uh, it's not just pleasing to the eye. And this dwelling place, 
um, when we speak of a dwelling, um, typically we think of a residence, right? Somebody who dwells in their home, they, it's their residence where they reside. And in fact, that's precisely what this means. Um, very specifically, this word is translated tabernacle in other places, a, a, a dwelling. Now, we know that the tabernacle of the Lord was a, uh, a, a very elaborate tent, if you will, a, a, a transportable house uh, with no wheels. Uh, you just pack it up and go. And, and that tabernacle became the dwelling place of the Most High. Throughout, uh, throughout the, uh, the, the wanderings of the children of Israel, through the wilderness. That is, that is the dwelling place of God. And it was very much associated with God's presence. Um, God's presence inhabited the tabernacle. And the tabernacle contained a very important piece of furniture. And that piece of furniture is known as the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is that place uh, where where treasures of the, uh, of the awesome acts of God's wondrous works were, were put, including the, the Ten Commandments, the law, the tablets. Um, and above the, above the lid were two carved, what, what were come to be known as seraphim, and they're basically angels that were kind of facing one another. And many of you have probably, probably seen artists' renderings of what the Ark of the Covenant may have looked like. Now, it's interesting that the Ark of the Covenant moved through, with Israel through the wilderness into the land of Canaan. Now, uh, remember, they approached the land of Canaan, the land of promise, and um, the doubters among them said, no, we can't do this. We can't go in there because the, even though it's promised to us, the people of the land are too big and too fearsome. We can't do that. So they wandered around for a generation in the wilderness until all of the naysayers died off, right? And here they come again to uh, the Jordan at the flood stage, and they're ready to enter in, and they... They walk into the waters at flood stage, um, and the, the uh, priests went first, carrying indeed the Ark of the Covenant, and the waters parted before them. It's interesting because um, at flood stage, the, the river is very, very wide and uh, probably rushing as well, kind of a dangerous feat. And uh, as I understand the scripture, they walked in. They, it, it didn't part before they walked in. They walked in and then it parted. And that's a, that's a statement of faith in and of itself. The, the tabernacle um, ended up resting in Shiloh after Joshua de declared the decree of, of uh, the division of the land among the tribes. And in chapter 18 of Joshua, uh, we read about that. that. And um, the Ark of the Covenant remained at Shiloh until King Saul, many, many, many years later, 
came and got the Ark of the Covenant, thinking that he would he would take it into battle against the Philistines, and the Lord would accomplish victory for for him as a result. Well, the story goes that no, sorry, that didn't work. Um, they were defeated and routed seriously, so much so that the uh, Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why are we why are we talking about this? You might ask. Well, because the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God, the dwelling place of God. And I'd like for us to just follow this history uh, a little bit. Um, so King Saul took it into battle. And, um, and they, they lost the battle, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken um, from them. And it just so happens that, that uh, remember uh, the prophet Eli? Eli and his sons, Phinehas and Hophni, and his two sons were bad dudes. I mean, they were... They were uh, Levites, they were priests, but they were not uh, following after the Lord at all. Well, as a result, they 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 went with the ark and are um, uh, into battle with with uh, Saul and the ark, and they were killed. And um, then Eli falls off his perch and dies, and um, and and we see this degradation, if you will. Of, of things happening. Uh, and it, it feels as though things are falling apart. But God is doing something really marvelous in the background. Philistines took the ark of God and, uh, from uh, an area called Ebenezer. Uh, it, it was actually named that later. But, but uh, they took it to Ashdod, which is a Philistine city. And they brought it to the house of Dagon. Dagon was their god, and if you recall the story, uh, in the morning, the idol Dagon was, had fallen over flat, face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And, and uh, pretty soon, the people started getting sick, and the Philistines said, what is going on here? Well, it must be the Ark of, of God. Let's send it off somewhere else. So they, they uh, sent it to Gaza and then to Ashkelon, and then to Gath, and then to Ekron. And Ekron is the place where they, they decided finally, let's put it on a cart and send it with some guilt offerings that, that, uh, and send it back to the people of Israel. And so they, they put it on this cart uh, that was uh, uh, pulled by a, a couple uh, cows that were lowing all the way, so the scripture says, uh, as they went into Beth Shemesh. And um, it's interesting that some of the children of Israel there in Beth Shemesh, they, they saw this thing coming and they decided to look into the Ark of the Covenant and were struck dead, just like that. Not only that, but over 50,000 people in that area were, were killed by a plague. So what, what is going on? They need to get rid of it too. So um, they sent it to Kirith-Jerim. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, 
we see that the men of Kirith Jerem came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And, and uh, it's, it stayed there. And that the people of, uh, of that area were blessed. The house of Abinadab was greatly blessed. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, David says, you know, we ought to go get the Ark of the Covenant out of the house of Abinadab because it's clearly blessing him. So we ought to bring that blessing our direction. So what do they do? They place it on a cart again, right? And this is the children of Israel doing this this time, not the Philistines. They put it on a cart and uh, they brought it up out of, uh, from the house of Abinadab. And um, if you remember, uh, one of the men that was uh, charged with watching it, uh, the servants of Abinadab, uh, Uzzah and Ahio. Ohio, I love that name. Makes me sound Midwestern, doesn't it? Um, uh, I guess, no, that would be Ohio, right? Uh, anyway, uh, they're walking with the cart, and Uzzah puts his hand up to steady the cart because it, it uh, went off in a rut, and uh, he's struck down. And David doesn't know what to think. He's thinking, oh, this, he's angry at the Lord. Why would you do this, Lord? And so he goes back and studies and finds out that the proper way to carry the ark is on poles. And so they decide then to um, to move the the uh, or the the they left they leave the ark in in a place called um, Obed Edom, and it's there for three months. In the meantime, they, David does some study, finds out how to carry it. They finally bring the ark forward from Obed Edom into the city of David with great gladness, and he is. And David is, this is a story of David uh, dancing before the ark, uh, uncovered, and his, his wife looks upon him with shame and, and, and so forth. Um, and guess where they took it? City of David, yes, but verse 17, 2 Samuel chapter 6, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. A tent. Started in a tent, it ended in a tent. Now, but it didn't stay there. Because in 2 Samuel um, uh, chapter 7, we uh, hear the story of David saying, I live in a house, but God's living in a tent. That doesn't seem right, that seems backwards. And so his heart was to build a house for the Lord. But the Lord said, no, no, you're not going to do that uh, because you've got too much blood on your hands. But your son will, the one who will, uh, I will raise up after you. And, uh, and, uh, and we know then that, that King Solomon built a temple. And in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, we hear of the dedication of the temple. So they brought, um, there at the dedication of the temple, let me just read uh, 1 Kings 8, 
uh, 20 and 21. Um, now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in place of my father David, this is Solomon speaking, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. So through this long course of history, we have the, the dwelling place of God moving from place to place, finally ending up in this magnificent temple. Um, so we have to have, still have to ask the question, where does God dwell? I mean, now the temple, Solomon's temple has been destroyed for millennia. Where does God dwell? Acts chapter 7, we read the story of Philip. And um, you remember Philip? He was the, the one who got stoned for his, his, uh, uh, his testimony before the Lord. And we read there that Philip stood up and, and spoke to the Jews saying, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for God, the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, and he quotes Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, of the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? That's verse 1 of Isaiah 66, but listen to verse 2. For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I look, to him who is humble. That word means poor and needy. To him who is humble and contrite. That word contrite means stricken or afflicted. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That word trembles means actually, yes, to fear, to be afraid. But it also has the connotation of absolute reverence. You see, God makes his dwelling place with the humble, the contrite, and those who fear or honor God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And in chapter 6, he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You see, God dwells with or in individuals by virtue of the Holy Spirit. But more than that, he dwells among believers. He, he, he dwells among believers who belong to each other 
as the household of faith. Peter writes in his first epistle, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Paul writes this to Timothy in his first letter to him. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. You see, the church collectively is the dwelling place of God. It's not just a meeting house. And I'm not talking about the, 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 uh, the building that we're in. It's the gathering of God's saints that is understood to be the church. So God dwells in us as individuals, but he also dwells among us as his people. So we go back to Psalm 84. You're wondering, how did we get here? <laughs> Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places. Notice it's plural. For so very long, I have read this, and I have not seen the S on the end of that word. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. That's what I have read, and that echoes in my head. But the reality is that the scripture says, how lovely are your dwelling places. Mine does say tabernacle, like you said, but the translation says dwellings. Dwellings, multiples. Yes. In the ESV, it says dwelling places. Yes. And I think if we... Again, it's, it's to look back at the original language, and it includes multiples. And I, I, have, to, I have to look at that and say, if, if we bring that forward to our time right now, on this side of the Christ event, and the recognition that God dwells in each one of us, and among us as his gathered saints, his dwelling places are many. Now, let's go on. Verse 2. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Soul, the word soul, um, in the original language, properly means a breathing creature. Someone who breathes and respirates. It's interesting to me, if we think about it, how did life happen? God breathed into Adam, did he not? The breath of life. And so, even in the image of God, he created them. God himself, his breath, is in us the life that we live is a result of him. The only creature that he said he 
Yes, correct. And, and so again, if we think about the breath as the life, God is indeed dwelling, living in us. Now, we, in our vernacular, we, say, we understand the soul typically to mean the mind, will, and emotions. And, and even if, if we look at that, it makes sense to me. My mind, will, and emotions longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. The word longed for um, literally means to become pale. <laughs> it speaks of a deep, deep desire that, that uh, this yearning, this pining after. The courts of the Lord here, in its original sense, um, speak of a yard, uh, uh, the courts of the Lord, the yard of the Lord. And, and, and bringing this into the 20th century, I kind of like the idea of looking at this and saying, I longed for, I, I, I yearned for the opportunity to hang out with God in his backyard. Here we are talking to each other across the fence and he invites me in. I love that imagery. Now, certainly the courts of the Lord also include those of the temple. But that, that original language um, it speaks of that, that, that yard. And we know that that is a meeting place. So the psalmist is longing for, yearning for the opportunity to meet with God. It's all about meeting him. Now, my heart and my flesh cry out. What, that my heart, I understand, but my flesh? I mean, come on. Today we think of our flesh, uh, if we read the New Testament, we think of the flesh as our enemy, right? Well, it's part of God's creation, is it not? Yes. And... It's designed also in God's image. Though we have perverted it to a great degree, in its sanctified state, it is indeed something that God uses. God inhabits. Now, now uh, the word flesh here, um, in, by extension, simply means our bodies. And if we use the word body and we, we look over into the New Testament where Paul says, do you not know that your body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? I don't know about you, but my brain is on fire. God, God's dwelling place, the yearning of this this psalmist's heart is to meet with God. And the dwelling place of God is indeed within us. So it's not something, he's not talking about a place. He's talking about a meeting with God. My heart and my flesh sum up who we are. 
Um, it's our sense of being. It's our, our identity. With all that I am, I long for this. Now, he says, we, it sings for joy. Um, that, in and of itself, is probably not the best translation because the word that is translated sing for joy actually means to creak or to emit a strident sound like a shriek or a cry. So I think in, in, many, in many ways, the, um, my heart and my flesh cry to the living God would be a better translation. Now, that also uh, fits with the idea of longing and yearning. Because what when we are longing for something, yearning for something, what are we doing? There's a sense of pain associated with that, right? Um, there's a sense of, of yet-to-be-satisfied desire. And, and um, so that idea of crying aloud uh, fits. Now, we cry note to the living God. Again, this is not yearning for a place. It is yearning for a relationship, yearning for a connection with the living God. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now, I just want to throw out this caution real quickly. As believers, we often, very often, associate place with our spirituality. Um, think about it. The place that you came to know the Lord. Maybe you don't remember the moment you said yes to Jesus, but you remember the season and where you were and the people you were associating with. And, and that becomes kind of a sacred place in our minds. Um, and, and it happens to... I, I think it happens a lot to young believers, but it also happens to old believers as well. Think about, think about Elijah. Right after Mount Carmel, remember Mount Carmel where he, where he confronted the prophets of Baal and just an incredible victory in the Lord, right? Um, but what does he do afterwards? He runs away. Why? Because this puny little witch, you could call, yes, um, this evil woman named Jezebel threatened him. He just called fire down from heaven and slew uh, over 600 priests. And he's worried about this one woman. But he goes off running, running away. And he ends up at Mount Horeb. Do you know what Mount Horeb is? It is the mountain in the north, northern part of Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee. And it is indeed a place that is understood to be a sanctified place where the Lord met his people. In fact, if we look in the New Testament, very likely that is the very place of the Mount of Transfiguration. 
the meeting place of God. And so even Elijah, in his great faith and maturity in God as a prophet, even there he, he ran in fear and retreated to this place, thinking that that's where he would meet God. But what happened there? <laughs> he, um, the Lord says, literally, this is what the scripture says. There he, and then he came to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And he goes into this long diatribe. I've been very jealous for the Lord, and, and I'm the only one left, and poor me, poor me. And, um, and then the Lord takes him to a, a, a place, and he says, uh, stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking it in pieces and the, rock, and the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after, after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? That's what the scripture says. And again, he goes into this diatribe. Oh, I've been very zealous for the Lord and so on and so forth. Well, and that ends up with the Lord saying to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And he goes on to anoint a couple new kings and pass his mantle to Elisha. All of that to say that God... We very often associate God's work with a place in our lives. It may be a time period in our lives where we might hearken back and say, man, that was just a great time. If it, it could only be like that again. But God's not about just repeating history. He wants to do a new thing. And I, my sense is that, um, yes, there is, a, there is a time and place. In fact, in, uh, uh, very recently, last week, the, the psalmist was asking the Lord, do it again. Do another victory like you did before. That's appropriate. But not take me back, Lord. I can't live on yesterday's manna. I can't live on yesterday's revelation. There's got to be a moving forward. Now, boy, 10 more minutes and we're only at verse two. So the psalmist clarifies his longing in verse two is for God himself, not a place or a former experience. Verse 3, the bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts. This isn't a statement that the temple has been left in disarray and now it's being inhabited by a bunch of birds. No, 
it, it is a tender acknowledgement of the fact that God, God's presence is a resting place for all of those who are in need, even the most tender and vulnerable. It's a place of safety. It's a place of nurturing. It's a place of belonging. In other words, it's a home. It's a dwelling place. Even your altars, these speak of the altar uh, in front of the temple, which was for the sacrifice or the burnt offering, but it also speaks of the altar of incense, which was in front of the most holy place, the holy of holies. And they are regarded as a place of, re, of affection and refuge. So if we take what those mean, what the actions that are done on those altars, and look at that affectionately, we understand that in sacrifice, God offers atonement. We break the word atonement up, it just so happens that it works very nicely in English. And what do we get? At one meant. It's about being at one with the Lord, establishing a reunion. And the incense, God receives the prayers of the saints. How do you know incense is burning? You can see the smoke, right? But more profoundly, you can smell it. And think about God breathing in. Breathing in. And there with the altar of incense, we see this communion of breathing even together. His beloved breathing together in unison. Now he says, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God, O Lord of hosts, note that God is sovereign over all. Host means many or arm, armies, uh, a, a, large, a large gathering. My king and my God is a very personal attachment. You see, my king and my God, this sovereign over all things is also a very personal God. Now, verse 4, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed means happy, right? Fulfilled. Those who dwell in your house could be likened to the servants who, who served in the temple. And the fact is that they are blessed because they are ever praising you. The blessing or fulfillment of their lives is seen in the fact that they are always praising you, always, in other words, worshiping. It's important for us to note that we are all, every single one of us in this room, all of us are created for the very purpose of worship. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, for by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. In chapter 3 of the same letter, he writes, whatever you do in word or deed, deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus, giving thanks 
through him to, the, to God the Father. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, it's all about worship. Now, the Lord's, Lord's house is his dwelling place. That is the place of our hearts and our minds and our bodies. God dwells here. And as a result, Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 3, do, do you not know that you are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Therefore, we have continual joy and the privilege of ever praising God all the time. Verse 5, how blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. The highways to Zion speaks of uh, a thoroughfare, um, and it has the connotation of the pilgrimage. Uh, you know very well that, that uh, the people of Israel made pilgrimage to the temple, to Jerusalem. And that is uh, probably what's being spoken of here. Um, it's a, a sacred way. It's a raised road, okay? Um, Mount Zion is the mountain of the Lord where his holy temple is and his dwelling place, quote-unquote. In other words... In other words, how blessed is the man, let's see, how blessed are those whose hearts are on the highways or on the pathway to meeting with God? How blessed are they? Now, how happy is the person? It uh, could be translated. The word... Um, Verse 5, uh, how blessed is the man whose strength is in you. The word strength includes the connotation of security, boldness, and power. When we attempt to live the life God has called us to in our own strength, in our own personal power, rather than the power of the Holy Spirit, we find ourselves to be inadequate, insecure, and easily intimidated, right? So when we find our strength, our security, our boldness, and our power in God, there is great joy because we can pursue meeting with God with abandon. There is more here than I bargained for. Okay. So we'll pick it up. Uh, I'll tell you what, we'll pick it up with verse 5 again and get a running start into verse 6. Um, well, wait a second. We got two minutes. Let's get through, let's get through verse 7. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. Um, it's, in, uh, it's interesting to note here. I used to think, oh, my goodness, that means the Valley of Baca. That sounds awful, doesn't it? Sounds like the Valley of, of Mourning or, or whatever. 
Uh, well, no, baka actually refers to a, um, a, uh, a bush or a, a shrub that grows up in the middle of the desert. And why does it grow up in the middle of the desert? Because it's associated with a source of water. And on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the people see these bushes and they find the source of water, a spring. And it goes, it goes on to say uh, they, uh, the early rain also covers it with blessing. It's a watering hole, basically. Um, and so, uh, again, this idea of pilgrimage is happening. So they go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. That um, from one place of refreshment or encouragement to the next one, all the way ascending to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion. And those, how many of you have been to Israel? Okay, a few of us. Just, the, just for the sake of understanding, the geography is that uh, you read in the scriptures talking about going up to Jerusalem. The reason is because you're going up in elevation to Jerusalem. The Dead Sea is down below sea level, right? And you're going from below sea level all the way up to um, Jerusalem. And Mount Zion is that dwelling place of God. And, and, uh, and so it's a arduous journey. And it is a lot like our landscape here in that it is dry, it's very arid and um, rocky. And, and that journey uh, requires refreshment. This idea of going from strength to play, strength uh, is indeed this idea of this, this spiritual pilgrimage of pursuing God. Refreshment follows periods of trial. Think about that. Refreshment follows periods of trial, dryness, even discouragement and disillusion. But it comes. Refreshment comes. And that refreshment energizes us to go through the next trial. And the journey rather than making us weary, even seems to exhilarate us. Going from refreshment to refreshment because God's grace is going with us. Um, for this reason, they gain strength as they go to appear before God in Zion. Um, And just a closing thought. Recently, I was challenged with this vision from the Lord that somebody had about, about um, doing, a, doing a play for Christmas here. And, uh, but the vision didn't include a script. <laughs> the script needed to be written. So who's going to write the script? So I ended up writing a script and planning on doing a play. And um, it went through various iterations, and finally we ended up with a, I 
think a fairly reasonably good final copy. And, and um, last week the decision was made, nah, probably not a good idea. Not enough time between now and Christmas to do all the memorization and work with the cast that's um, no doubt going to be challenged, okay? So perhaps another time. That's disappointment, right? But what happens with that? The beauty of that is that the woman who had the vision from the Lord to do this, um, when she heard the news that we're not going to do it, she said, well, that's okay. God will use it some other time. And it was a great lesson for me on the fact that how we view God and our journey makes a huge difference in how we deal with disappointment. Because this disappointment, well, it's, it's, it's not the end. It's, it's a, it's a uh, it may be a, a, a bump in the road. It may be a place where the muffler falls off, but it, the car doesn't stop running. So we stop and we wire it back on and we get some water from the spring out uh, 100 yards off the road and here we go again. And God is going to do something different in the future. We can count on that. This is his business, not ours. This, this road we're traveling is one that he's marked out. We haven't. And so we can trust that his his provision will carry us on. It's 8.05 and I've overstayed my welcome. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word to us tonight. And, and for the, the fact that, yes, you do indeed provide refreshment as we go. And you enable us to go from strength to strength. And that, Lord, as, as we are pursuing you there is great blessing in that. We thank you as well, Lord, for the miracle that your dwelling place is within us and among us. And in view of that, Lord, we pray that you would find yourself to be delighting in your residence, in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.